This is Judaism Unbound, episode 50, Bending the Ark. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And we're here today for the second episode of our three-part series on the beginning of the Donald Trump administration and its impact on the present and future of American Judaism. We're joined today by Rabbi Jason Kimmelman Block, the director of Bend the Ark Jewish Action, an organization that is the advocacy and political arm of Bend the Ark, which is a major progressive Jewish organization operating in the Jewish community. It's name is inspired by the famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In addition to being the director of Bend the Ark Jewish Action, Jason is the co-editor and co-author of Just Judaism, Action and Social Change, and previously served as the director of the Panim Institute for Jewish Leadership and Values. Jason, we're really excited to have you with us today for this conversation, a really important one. Great to be here. As I said uh, last week to Shai Held, I wish it were under different circumstances. Indeed. I'm wondering as we go on with this series on the Jewish present and future in the age of Donald Trump, whether you could just sort of start by telling us a little bit about your organization, Bend the Ark, and how it's been involved in this story. Bend the Ark is a organization of American Jews that are seeking to recommit and give a venue for American Jews to act according to our values of deep communal purpose, which is a commitment to justice, a commitment to build a society that is inclusive and equitable and supportive of, in ancient terms, Tzalem Elohim, the idea that each human being is created in the divine image uh, and therefore is entitled to life and a life of dignity. And we see that as being an important, not just for Jews, but across race and class and gender uh, and faith. So so we can understand the position of Ben the Ark just generally uh, in terms of its mission. You know, my understanding of it is it basically uh, is standing for a progressive Judaism, a Judaism that's committed to what we at least understand in America as progressive values and progressive, what usually aligns, let's say, with progressive politics. And I'm wondering if that's a fair characterization. And if it is, I'm wondering if, how do you sort of position Ben the Ark in terms of what it's saying about the meaning of Judaism? Well, the first thing I would say is that Ben the Ark organizes American Jews from across the religious spectrum, including those Jews who don't consider themselves to have a religious connection at all. So we have Orthodox Jews, Reformed Jews, Conservative Jews, Secular Jews, Bundist Jews, Jews who may have very different ways into how they understand their identity. We draw from not only values that go back thousands of years, but also the historical experience of Jews, not only in Europe, but in the Middle East, and not only many centuries ago, but in the past centuries, as well as our experience in American society as well. So that's one frame that I would just like to put forward first is we are, uh, we're an organization of, of American Jews. We are very comfortable with the phrase progressive and, you know, ultimately who we're organizing are progressive Jews, which make up the vast majority of American Jews. But uh, I think it's less about those political labels and more about what are the values that we are uh, fighting for as a community. 
And for me, the, the, the key value is around the value of supporting human dignity, about creating a society where humans can thrive and building a tolerant society. And that having a, uh, a tolerant, open, vibrant society, that's part of why my grandparents moved to this country. If we look at thousands of years of Jewish history, we will see that tolerant societies are the societies where Jews not only thrive, but are safe. So yes, it's part of a value that we have. I think it's embedded in the tradition, but it's also connected to our history. And in, and in a certain respect, it's connected to, to Jewish self-interest. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a, a march with Dr. William Barber, who is a leader of the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina uh, that's been fighting for voting rights for a number of years. He's an extraordinary leader. And he made the comment, which I think is connected to how I think about Ben the Ark, is we're not liberal or conservative. We want to conserve justice and spread it around liberally. <laughs> Love that. So let's go back to a lot of this analysis in, in depth. I want to go there, but I also want to start off as we've been talking about the start of the Donald Trump presidency by also understanding where Ben the Ark has been vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump. Because it, if I'm, again, recalling correctly, your speaking out against him began while he was still running in the Republican primaries. And there was particularly a slogan that you had on your, your materials, this idea that we've seen this before and that you were particularly looking at Donald Trump as different from the other Republican candidates for the presidency during the primaries. I believe that we were the first Jewish organization to come out strongly against Donald Trump and to focus on him specifically. I believe it was as early as November 2015, so uh, well over a year ago. And the initial flashpoint was when uh, he had made a statement that he would be interested in registering Muslims in this country. And uh, we saw that as an indicator that and this was this was at a time when most of the media establishment was treating him as a joke you know, as a sideshow, something entertaining. Uh, and I think the, the media decided they were, they wanted to get ratings from it and they put him on TV a lot. Um, and we saw in this as an indicator that he had aspirations to be a demagogue. And the more we saw, we saw kind of classic signs of what it means to be a demagogue, to take the votes most vulnerable members of society, target them, speak to a larger population's often legitimate grievances, and say, this vulnerable minority, whether it's undocumented immigrants, whether it's Muslims, those are the reasons for your problems. And if you elect me as a strong leader, I will make your lives better. That sent off, uh, I think, many, many Jews' antennas in the air. And uh, it was at that time, it was, I think, the day that came out, we put out a statement that essentially said, registering a group based on their religion, Jews have seen that before, and we know that it doesn't end well. 
And there was a lot of internal debate as to whether we should go that far, because there's an unwritten rule, I think, in politics, as well as certainly in the Jewish community, that you just don't invoke. To be clear, we didn't call him a Nazi. We didn't say he was planning genocide. But we knew what we were invoking. We didn't do it lightly, but we thought that the historical resonance was strong. That night, Rachel Maddow read that statement on her show. So we knew that that phrase, we've seen this before, had strong resonance. And that became the, the hashtag and the overarching theme for our campaign to defeat Donald Trump. And the way I thought about it, the way we thought about it, it wasn't just about we've seen this before with Jews in Europe. It's that tyrants, strongmen, targeting of vulnerable populations, that is a pattern that we've seen. We've seen it in Europe. We've seen it in South America. We've seen it in this country in, uh, in varying degrees. And that's the historical cycle that we are afraid is being repeated. What I'm struggling with, though, is is also this element that it seems like for most Jews, it seems like if they know our history, they're very comfortable talking about the destruction of the Second Temple or the Spanish Inquisition. And if you made yeah. if you made analogies to that, they would be like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Whereas if you make any kind of analogy to the Holocaust, the people go up in arms. And the I, of course, we understand that because it's more recent. It's in our the memory of our own uh, people that are still alive today. But at the same time, part of me also feels like it doesn't do honor to the great pain and terrible destruction of those earlier times in our history, slavery in Egypt, you know, that we feel very True. comfortable talking about. And, and so it almost feels like by failing to um, be willing to think about the Holocaust and those experiences as a basis for thinking about things in our own day, that we're also actually not doing real justice and honor to all the people, all the Jews who suffered in many previous generations, because perhaps we're, by implication, saying that their pain wasn't so wasn't as great, and therefore we can make analogies based on it. And, and somehow, I don't know, it just feels like um, uh, we, we have to be able to look at our experience in the Holocaust and to say, yeah, whatever might be happening today in America or elsewhere is not as bad, but it's still bad. And we can therefore still learn from things that brought it about, you know, just because just because saying that Hitler engaged in certain types of behaviors that led to his rise and Trump may be behaving in similar ways doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying, and therefore Trump is going to become Hitler. It just says, and therefore Trump is acting like a demagogue and and might potentially harm American democracy in terrible ways. And if I'm not allowed to talk about the Holocaust, what analogy am I allowed to use? Right. I mean, I think that's fair. I think that, look, when you're closer to the events when you know people personally, whether it's people in your synagogue or your community or family members who experience them firsthand, you're going to relate to them differently than something you read about in a book that happened hundreds of years ago. I think there are a, a couple of things I, I'd like to say on, on this topic. One is, I think it was Elie Wiesel who talked about there are different lessons that we can draw from the from the Holocaust and one which he lays out as the wrong lesson the world is out to get Jews we're on our own 
our only hope is to be as strong as possible because everyone else is against us. Uh, and another lesson is that this could happen anywhere to any, any vulnerable group of people. And we have a responsibility to ensure that that does not happen anywhere else to anyone. And so I think sometimes when we get into conversations about you're not allowed to invoke that historical analogy, uh, it may be because we don't like the point that the person is invoking it to make. The other thing I would say is, uh, and we've had these conversations a good amount internally, when we talk about historical resonance, there is a difference between fascism and or a kind of fascism and genocide. Um, and fascism doesn't automatically lead to genocide. There are many examples of fascism that did not. If you look at Mussolini, if you look at Franco. So I think part of the difficulty is when you're calling out something that may be a kind of proto-fascism or that has those overtones where you mix autocracy with nationalism and militarism, you might want to call that out as a thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying that like there's a genocide about to happen. And so I think it's really important that we separate those those terms. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have a question. I'm just looking because we haven't quite said this either on this episode or in past episodes, but as somebody who has spent the last year plus working against um, some of the things that Donald Trump stands for and is continuing to do so over the next few years, can you articulate for us and for our listeners, what is it about this man, both about this man, Donald Trump, and some of the policies and ideas that he's pushed that is particularly you know, unprecedented or worrisome for us. And that, and that could be as a Jew, as a human being, as a rabbi, as a whatever element that is important to bring to this conversation. But that's the piece also where I just want to refine that question just a, a smidge, because I'm really curious about this question. Just as you know, Lex asked it, but I just want to kind of really focus in on this question of what would be the difference if the policies that Donald Trump is trying to enact you know, there was some other Republican that had won the presidency and was enacting a lot of those policies. Is the focus or should the focus be primarily on Donald Trump as a person and and the way that he has belittled so many different groups and the way that he has conducted himself versus a set of conservative or Republican policies that that we don't like and that we think don't do good, don't do honor to to many other groups, but nevertheless are sort of within the mainstream of, of American political discourse. Here's how I would respond. I would say that the issue is not singularly about an individual. It is about a movement and a political approach that he now embodies and is the leader of. So the issue is more Trumpism than just this person. In terms of what is it that's so uh, different and concerning, I think it is about the flouting and sometimes disdain of democratic norms of our society, what we've seen around an inability to accept the truth 
insistence of repeating falsehoods over and over and over again is different than what we've seen in typical American politics before. There has been a strain of the Republican Party the last number of years that he has picked on and amplified and now brought to power. So it's not like he created it out of thin air, but he tripled down on it. Um, and, you know, I already talked about the, the targeting of people. And it's not just, you know, he says offensive things, which is, I think, how some people take it. It, it is about isolating and targeting entire groups of people. It is about admiration of power and a focus of power above ideology. That poll numbers, popularity, and the fact that you win is its own end in and of itself is uh, is different and dangerous. I think the the proud glee at shouting down and calling for violence against protesters is something that's different. And in terms of like distinguishing Donald Trump from Republicans and just sort of general conservative politics at large, uh, at this moment, there is no difference between Donald Trump and Republicans. Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party. There was a lot made about Marco Rubio's uh, point, having some pointed questions for Rex Tillerson during his confirmation hearings. The fact is he's falling in line. The Republican Party is supporting Trump's agenda. So I don't think there is a difference. Um, there are many conservatives who I would disagree with in terms of a policy, uh, in terms of many policy issues, but who I think do have the, the republic and the best interests of, uh, of the country at heart. Who, and, and there are many conservatives that used to find a home in the Republican Party that have since left. And it's possible that they may form their own party, or, and it's possible they may work to retake the Republican Party. But in the historical moment that we're in, and that we will be in for this foreseeable future, there is not a difference or a split between Trump and Republicans. So this raises a question that came up last week in our conversation with Shai Held, and that I've actually heard a little bit of more feedback and inquiry from some of our listeners about which is this question of, well, first, I mean, it's clearest if we're talking about people that are Trumpists, you know, but it, you've even sort of, I think, amplified the question by saying that at least in this moment, the Republican Party is the party of Trump. And so that raises this question of how should we be thinking about the Jewish community as a whole or our Jewish communities, such as perhaps the synagogue, and the question of how much should our communities or our community kind of put a stake in the ground and say, we stand for this set of values. And if you don't stand for those values and that supporting Donald Trump is itself a sign that you don't, that you're welcome to be part of our community in the sense that we're not going to throw you out, but we are in no way open to having our community shaped by your voice. When I think about what it means to be part of a Jewish community, I'm often thinking locally about the people who I'm in regular contact with on maybe a daily, maybe a weekly, maybe a monthly basis that I have live interactions with. 
And I think there are various formations of common values and purpose that bring together different kinds of communities. So if that community is a synagogue or if that community is a independent minion or if that community is a local Jewish organizing group, the community itself needs to decide what they're coming together for and what its purpose is and how they're going to operate. So I wouldn't come here and say, I wouldn't want to say like every Jewish institution needs to gate check. I would say that the kind of Jewish community that I would like to be a part of, and I think that many, many Jews want to be part of, is one that is relevant, is engaging, and has a clear moral purpose about how we should live our lives in a complex world and in difficult times. What I'm struggling with is at the moment where my community cannot speak up against this, I have no more desire to be part of that community, right? It, it has absolutely nothing to say to me. You know, at the moment that Judaism cannot say that there are some red lines and Trump's behavior has crossed so many of them that there's absolutely no way that we can anything other than absolutely condemn that from a Jewish point of view, whether the reason is Jewish texts or the image of God or the experience of the Holocaust or whatever source text you want to use. At the moment that we cannot condemn that as a community, I know that I personally want to have nothing to do with it anymore. And I'm sure that all the more so that's true for many of our listeners, you know, who aren't so sure they want to have anything to do with the Jewish community anyway, you know, for other reasons. So I think this is, you know, among the hardest issues to fully wrap our mind around. And yet we have to, because I think that whatever ideological positions we want to state here, I predict, and we talked about this on our show before, that a lot of Jews are going to vote by exit from the Jewish community if the Jewish community does not uh, find its voice, or if Jewish communities don't find their voice to really stand up and say, we as Jews cannot have anything to do with this and cannot do anything other than to condemn this, because otherwise, what's the point of Judaism? It's clear to me that that is a process that's already happening. I would like to push back on the idea that there is a Jewish community. The idea of the Jewish community with a capital T and a capital J. The Jewish community is what we create, and we're creating it anew over and over again. The Jewish community is not synonymous with Jewish institutions and organizations. There are Jewish organizations that claim to be the Jewish community or speak for the Jewish community or represent the Jewish community. And I actually reject that just because an organization has been around for 80 or 100 years that they necessarily speak for me. I think the test will be, what are the institutions that people are resonating with? What are the institutions that people do speak for? And will enough people vote with their feet to create those communities, create those institutions and support that? I will not say that the Republican Jewish coalition shouldn't exist or isn't Jewish, but I think that their behavior in the election 
was abhorrent. And so I would never want to be a part of an institution that was not willing to stand up uh, against a would-be tyrant, who, by the way, still is not condemning the anti-Semitism even that's being commit committed by his supporters in his name. I think there is a severe moral failing that's happening at various levels. I think there is also a strain, to be fair, of there is an approach to this administration that says we need to engage with it to not just fight it, but to engage with it and hopefully we'll be able to influence it in some ways. That's a that's a classic approach to to politics when you're in the opposition that that I understand. It is one that I think this is the wrong moment for. My concern right now is I think that there are far too many Jewish national organizations that are adopting that approach. Uh, we need a few, but we don't need the majority. <laughs> um, I think we need the majority of Jewish uh, national organizations fighting. That's that's a perfect segue. So I, I was curious about that. So in terms of this fight, so we've we've got a lot of people out there, largely in the in streets. I mean, we just saw an incredible, massive show of of demonstrations. But we've got a lot of people who want to be doing something right now, yep. and you are at the forefront of an organization that is very much committed to 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 acting and and fighting against what this new administration is conceivably going to stand for. And I'm curious to hear you weigh in on some of these conversations. So there's there's so much dialogue happening, which is good, about, you know, to go to what you were just talking about. Is this a time, is this a moment for sort of change from within kinds of structures? Is this a moment for change very much not from within? Is this a, is this a get out there um, and, and focus on gathering a community, community organizer? Is it a time to focus on pivoting particular Congress people? Is, I mean, I'd love to hear sort of strategic questions um, from you about like, what are the different options that people are pursuing and what would you sort of advocate between them in this moment? I'll give you the big picture of where, uh, of what Bend the Arc's take is on the historical moment we're in and the strategies that we think are the best ones to respond right now. Um, we do see the election of Donald Trump and the radical Republican Congress right now it's fanning bigotry and hatred it's making our society far less tolerant and um we see the disregarding of democratic institutions we see this as an unprecedented existential threat to our vision for an inclusive equitable and just country we think that there is a unique jewish moral voice that we can add into this fight, that we have a tradition that calls upon us to be bold and courageous in the face of this threat. And we think that mobilizing thousands of American Jews to be part of a movement to push back against what's happening uh, can make a real difference. And there are essentially three things we need to do. One is 
to fight the agenda on the national scale, to expose it, to push back, to discredit the narrative. The second thing we need to do is in areas where progressives and our allies have power is to demonstrate that we're a credible opposition, that we can make people's lives better. So on the local uh, and statewide level where we have power, it's about taking on campaigns that provide true benefits to people that, you know, like Jews United for Justice in Washington, D.C., just uh, led led a successful campaign uh, for paid medical and family leave uh, in this country. So campaigns like that, campaigns like um, uh, ending mass incarceration, which often happens at the state level. Um, and the third thing we need to do is actually get involved in the political process and win back power uh, in 2018 and 2020. And that's something that we, um, we haven't touched on yet is that uh, is the politics. And the fact is we can do teaching, we can do mobilization, but it, you know, when all is said and done, the people who hold power are the people who get elected. So we have to get involved in, uh, in election campaigns. One thing I'll say is as over-organized as the Jewish community is, the Jewish community has a reputation of having, you know, a, million different organizations. Nearly all of them are exclusively 501c3 organizations, which are charitable organizations. Uh, one of the questions you asked me before the call was, what's the difference between Ben the Ark, a Jewish Partnership for Justice, and Ben the Ark, Jewish Action? Uh, and the difference is that, is that Ben the Ark, Jewish Action is a 501c4, which is the part of the tax code, <laughs> the uh, category of organization that enables you to do, there is no limit to the direct advocacy and lobbying that you can do. And uh, the Jewish community is actually not over-organized in that area. There are only about it, half a dozen Jewish C4s, uh, and almost all of them are focused on Israel advocacy in one form or another. And while the Jewish community, as while we know the Jewish community is not a single Jew constituency, and uh, there are Jewish organizations around uh, hunger and the environment and many different topics that we all care about as being concerned citizens of this society, the way we organize our raw political power is almost exclusively around Israel advocacy. Shaihel talked last week sort of from a different angle. Uh, it was uh, just after Martin Luther King Day, and he talked about how Martin Luther King has been domesticated by our memory of him, right? And his radicalness is not appreciated anymore. And just listening to you now, I'm also thinking about whether it's fair to say that Judaism in America has been domesticated by, for example, I mean, even things as sort of prosaic as which part of the tax code Judaism is organized under, or, <laughs> right, or we've talked in the past about Judaism in America being considered a religion where Judaism throughout its history wouldn't necessarily have classified itself that way. And when you're classified as a religion in America, that means you get certain benefits which is also the case if you classify yourself as under 501c3 of the tax code, you get certain benefits, but you also have certain limitations. Now, in a normal 
situation that may be just fine. But what was so interesting to me to pick up another term that you used, the term existential threat, right, which we're also very commonly hearing that term used about Israel. And to imagine that now, which I think, again, I think that the vast majority of American Jews would agree with you. They may not have come up with the terminology, but having put it out there, is there an existential threat to our democracy out there that's at least as concerning as the various existential threats to Israel that we've been talking about for a long time that shouldn't we therefore have to operate to stop that existential threat? And if the way in which we're organized um, in terms of, of being a religion in America or being a 51c3 based community don't allow that, then the question is, what should we be sort of thinking about in terms of how the community should be reorganized? Because I think in our minds, it probably was, yeah, we might need a new set of 501c3s, but didn't really sort of imagine that it was, uh, was going to be more radical than that. First of all, you can do effective work as a 501c3. So I, I don't want to give the impression that you can't do incredible, great work within a 501c3. So could you clarify like what you can do and what you can't do? Sure. There is a limit to the amount of time that you can spend directly lobbying members of Congress. So you can do some lobbying, but there's a time limit to it. So when you're a 501c3, you have to carefully track that and make sure that your staff time doesn't go or your resources don't go above a certain level. You're also on higher alert during election season. So while you can always talk about issues and can never talk about candidates, that's the general rule with 501c3s. In election season, sometimes the impression about candidates and issues can get conflated. So if you were to take out an ad, a full page ad in the New York Times that said, please, you know, that talked about the importance of voting according to your pro-choice values, everyone knows which candidate you're calling for. And you might not run afoul of the IRS in that situation, but most smart CEOs and CFOs would advise not to do <laughs> that activity. So it, it means there's some limitation. You, we talked about this before a little, I forget who mentioned it, but about the limitations of 501c3 and the limitations of, of, religi of being a religion. For some people, at least my read on it, is that they segment sort of, these are my religious beliefs and these are my political beliefs. And those are separate boxes. And as somebody who's at the forefront of one of the leading organizations that definitely combines or blurs or packages those boxes somehow, um, I'm wonder I would love to hear just sort of maybe your pitch or your your argument for for what what it is about religious values that can inform our politics or maybe specifically Jewish values that can inform politics, and perhaps vice versa, how politics can inform our Judaism. I think the answer to my question relates back to something Dan said earlier, which is about there's been a domestication of Judaism in the United States. There has been a attempt to morph Judaism into a Protestant model of religion, that it happens in the pews in this building during these hours of the week. And I think what we're seeing uh, these days, not just like in one organization, but I think generationally uh, in the zeitgeist in general is a rejection of that, that you know, the way you pray 
and where you pray and if you pray. Yeah, that's an aspect of Jewish life, but it is not the exclusive aspect. And all it takes is uh, a quick read at the textual tradition itself, which touches on every aspect of your life from your kitchen to your bedroom to societal structures at large. Many, many of those values and those institutions are what we would only describe as radical to the modern American ear. The idea that you own nothing, that all your wealth is not something you deserve or that you earned, but that all wealth belongs to God and is actually just on loan to you is at the very least not what our current modern economy is structured on. The idea that Shabbat is a day of rest, not only for men and women, but for animals, that animals are entitled to rest, that is an equalizing that is not only radical in the ancient world, but radical today. So many of the Jews that I know that I've seen their posts on Facebook, that I've seen them at the Women's March, and that see the existential threat that you described, you know, that understand that there are many of our fellow Americans who don't see that existential threat, and that they want to act vigorously to defend our democracy from what they see as an existential threat. And whether they are Jewishly connected at present or not, that it's not the natural place to go to the Jewish community or lowercase to Jewish communities to find those who are with you in solidarity for that. And, and it's more than solidarity, right? It's, it's the alarm of an existential threat. Right. And, and I think it's helpful to use that language because I think that a lot of Jews are familiar with what it looks like when the Jewish community is alarmed by an existential threat that it recognizes and it, that it thinks it ha can and has a duty to act upon because that's how the whole Israel conversation has been framed for so long. So when you walk into a Jewish communal space and you don't sense that alarm and you don't sense that urgency and that organizing, I think you say, this apparently is not a place that recognizes this as an existential threat. And so then all of those Jews will go to the various extra Jewish organizations, whether it's the Women's March or whoever it may be, that actually does see the situation as this existential threat and that is organized to help them act on that basis. My question is whether Jewish life, not Jewish ideas, but Jewish organizations are at all going to be relevant in that story in the next few years ahead, with the exception of a few like Ben the Ark. And, and I don't know exactly, I don't really have a question here. I'm hoping you have an answer because I'm, I just find it deeply troubling that, you know, a lot of our show is about this disgruntled but optimistic approach that says, you know, Jewish organizations aren't working so well, but Jewish material is still really great. And so people can mine that material and build new organizations. And over time, that's going to build some really great new organizations that are going to grow and grow and become central. And, and eventually we'll have, you know, a new version of Judaism that'll be wonderful and they'll have more people involved than ever were before. 
But that's that sort of long-term optimism is not necessarily something that has much to say about a situation that's the next four years or the next eight years where we might require quick action or else we're going to be in a very terrible situation as far as the United States goes. And, and Judaism has obviously been very comfortable in the United States. And the question is kind of what to do in the short term from a Jewish point of view that doesn't end up with a situation where so many people in the next four years essentially walk away from Judaism because they find that it's really just not active. So the first thing I want to say, I just want to be clear that the existential threat is to an inclusive, equitable, and just country. Yeah. So I just want to be yeah. clear that, that that's what the that's existential what threat yeah. is to is is a is as a tolerant society. I wouldn't I wouldn't want people to to mishear uh, what what I mean by that term. I see a lot of Jewish vibrancy. I see people who are graduates of day schools who are, you know, deeply embedded in Jewish ideas that are taking those values and ideas and creating institute new institutions and new configurations of American Jewish life that are vibrant and meaningful. I see many of the older classic Jewish institutions that embrace those new modes. And I see many classic institutions that are severely threatened by those modes and are having trouble uh, keeping up. There is an advantage and a disadvantage to what uh, I think it's Wade Clark Roof had this uh, book called Spiritual Marketplace. Um, and I you know, mean that term kind of wide. The uh, the ones that are relevant, that speak to people's need for life purpose, communal purpose, those will attract people. And uh, if it's meaningful to their lives and where they want to put their life energy, people will, will, will join it. And I see a strong desire among even the what you know the Pew study would call the most marginal Jews and the nuns and that that um, that think positively about their Jewish heritage and background, but have not seen a live Judaism that speaks deeply to those values. So yeah, our most kind of classic organizations or the models that, you know, our parents may be most familiar with and comfortable with, or maybe us as, am I right, Dan, over 40 somethings, <laughs> um, to say. Uh, might, you know, might have some comfort in, um, are those, are those kind of looking and feeling stale to most American Jews, you bet. So I guess the the advantage is that we actually do have the ability to connect with each other, to form different kinds of Jewish communities, and, and it and it's happening. So I'm not pessimistic. I think that if what we want to preserve is a classic network of organizations, the kind of American Jewish community that was built in the 20th century. I think that probably uh, some of those institutions will figure out how to remain relevant and some just won't. That message is really a nice place to draw toward our conclusion because I, I think that's really one of our goals for this podcast is to put the message out that 
it's normal. And, and I think that a lot of people look at those organizations and say, yeah, that's the Jewish community and I don't agree with it and it doesn't have anything to say to me. And so I guess I'm not that Jewish. And, you know, how can we really encourage the point of view that that you said today and that I've heard you say before, which is that, no, you know, Judaism has has these values and, and this material and those organizations may not be taking that material seriously enough and, and using it the way it needs to be used. And if you understand that there's a different way, that is a Jewish way and and you should build build something with it or join those who are building with it and not not assume that the Jewish community is the biggest guy with the biggest building on the block. Right. And, you know, not to not to pick on Abe Foxman, but, you know, I, I just keep reading quotes from him in the paper and I thought he retired already. <laughs> and so, like, why is why does Abe Foxman get to continue to speak for the Jewish community? I am much more interested in what Sharon Browse has to say about the issues of the day, what Yavila McCoy has to say about the issues of the day, uh, what Stash Kotler has to say about the issues of the day than I am about uh, what Abe Foxman has. Thank you for your leadership. You had a great run, but you know we have incredible leaders that are um, that are coming up and uh, that are often women. Uh, that aren't all of European descent. And like, there is this great community out there. It's just needs, uh, it needs more attention. So thank you so much for all this. And I, I really think we have a ton to chew on in our next episode where Dan and I get to get to blabber on about our, our thoughts about the moment. But um, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave us and our listeners with about the moment that we are facing right now? I guess the final thought I would say is the long term. I think for us to have a vibrant community of Jews that are fighting to make this society better, um, we need people who are grounded in the Jewish commitment to justice that also have the leadership skills of leading grassroots movements in partnership that are able to partner across lines of difference that are able to speak passionately about the vision that they have for their communities and the country and the world. And so I think even as we're in this moment of urgency where there is, it, it is a crisis where there will be things that we have to respond to tomorrow and next week that we also put a lot of attention into what does it take to grow effective and resilient leaders. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. It was a great conversation. We want to close out the episode like we always do by encouraging you, the listeners, to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound, uh, like our page and follow what's going on there. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, that has show notes for this episode and for all of our other episodes, along with a variety of cool resources for you to check out. 
And last but not least, we always encourage folks to be in touch with us via email. You can do that at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. And the last thing we like to suggest is that folks can always support us with a monetary donation of whatever amount you are able. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.